The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. But our text verse, again this evening, text verses are from Psalm chapter 29, verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to read them to you probably before you find it. But there it says, Given to the Lord, O ye mighty, given to the Lord glory and strength, given to the Lord the glory due unto his name, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. For the past two messages in our series, we've been talking about worship, actually the corporate worship of the church and how we are to come together as God's people, as his assembly, and worship him here. And really that's the primary objective when we come here and meet together as the Lord's church. It is, of course, to worship him. And a very good pattern of public worship is found in the Old Testament concerning uh, the tabernacle. The worship of God in the Old Testament was centered on the tabernacle. And as you know, I preached on that last week as we had the Lord's Supper, I spoke about that because the tabernacle is simply fascinating to me. I, I love the, the study of the tabernacle. Even have had some questions this past week out of that sermon having to do with uh, what I preached about the Ark of the Covenant. But one of the things that I wanted to make very clear uh, when I was preaching on that and, and still do is that the plans for the tabernacle worship were very, very specific. What was in the tabernacle was copied from the heavenly sanctuary. And I think all of us would certainly know that what's in heaven is perfect. And that ought to be really a warning to us that we're not to deviate from that which is perfect. When God tells us how to do worship, what to do, we ought not to change God's plan. Keep doing what God tells us to do. Now, when Moses built the tabernacle, the materials for the building and the plans for the furnishings, the order of worship, just everything that was done there, all of it was very particular. In Exodus and Leviticus, we find specifics of service. There were certain duties that the priest had to do. They had to be carried out exactly as they were instructed. And we learn from reading the Old Testament that there were instances when disobedience in worship actually caused people to die. That's what happened with Nadab and Abihu, were the sons of Aaron. They brought strange fire in their censers, something that God hadn't commanded for worship and so God struck them dead. And that tells us, I think, that perversion of worship is a very serious thing, that doing it God's way is very highly important, so that when we get into the New Testament, Jesus said, those that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. We have to be sure that we're getting it right. And that, I think, is expressed in this psalm, in that second verse there that we read, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Worship was a high priority in the Old Testament, and much more is it a priority, high priority in the New Testament era because God has given us more revelation. God has given us more that we can understand about Christ and about God's work. And so there's actually a higher premium on worship in the time that we live than there was in Old Testament times. So if God was striking people dead in the Old Testament for perverting worship, watch out. He might not do it to you just like that, but he can do it. And uh, we have to be careful about this. So we look at this as, as uh, an activity that God has given to us. It's a very godly activity to worship him. 
And worship is an individual thing. I mean, we're, we're talking about corporate worship, but worship, of course, is an individual thing. And uh, as individuals, we have to do it right. I mean, our church is really the sum part of the individuals, isn't it? And so what you do in your everyday life, the way that you live, the way that you act, the way that you live for Jesus is going to have an effect on the entire body of the Lord Jesus Christ, how we're able to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And that's because unholy people are never going to make for holy worship. It just can't, it just can't happen. Well, there are four acts of public worship that I want to highlight in these messages. As I said, everything that we do in our church is intended for worship, but there are four things, four particular areas that stand out that uh, I'm highlighting in these messages, and two of them we've already talked about, a third we just got started into, and uh, we'll talk about these a little bit more tonight. The fourth one comes in the next message, and, and I really don't have a ranking of importance for these except for the first one. The very first one, I think, is the most important, so it should show up as number one in our study, and if you remember, that is the priority of preaching. That preaching is the most important thing that we do because preaching is the way that God speaks to us. Preaching exposits God's Word. And the only thing that we have that reveals to us what God has to say to us is His Word. So we have to find the truth of what, who God is and what God wants from the Word. And so whenever God speaks, what we are to do is to be silent and to listen to what God says. And we're to let the Holy Spirit take God's Word and use that to work on our hearts. And when I preach, I'm not God. And some of you are more than happy to point that out, as you do regularly. Uh, I'm incapable of delivering a perfect sermon, of knowing everything perfectly from the Word of God. I'm not capable of that because I don't have divine inspiration. The apostles, writers of the Scriptures, they had divine inspiration. I don't have that. But God can still take that Word that's used in its by those of us who are just human, clay pots, just what God uses, and he can take that word and he can excise sin from the heart. He can take that to discern the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And when a preacher takes God's word and preaches it in his truth, it's going to be beneficial to you as the membership of the church. And that means you need to listen to preaching. Everything that we do in worship is actually a response to the word of God, God speaking in his word. So preaching is the most important because that's God speaking to us. Well, the second thing that we've discussed is public prayer. Private prayer is important, and I have uh, really a series of messages coming up on, uh, on private prayer in this study as well. But public prayer is intensified. Or the prayer is intensified when you have all of God's people that that come together and their hearts are knit together in, in a common cause to speak with him. Uh, we're, we're, I guess you would call it in the amen mode when we come together as God's people and we're praying for the same things. James said that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And as I pointed out in that last message, how much more when you have many, many righteous people that are praying for the same things does the prayer avail much. But even though that's true, I don't think there are a lot of members of Berean that actually think that way. Whether, do, they, do we really as God's people think that prayer avails that much? Because we find it difficult to get people together for prayer meetings. Did you know that? When we call a special prayer meeting, it's hard 
to get people to come to church. Sometimes on Wednesday nights we'll do that. Uh, We'll call an all-church prayer meeting. And often those services are the least attended that we have. Now, we already have some problems with Wednesday night attendance. Although I've looked back over the past few years, and according to the numbers that we have on Sundays, the Wednesday night attendance has been pretty consistent. But I still see that as somewhat as a problem. And some have said, well, they, they, they really can't get as much as they'd like to out of Wednesday night teaching because it's difficult. And, and those of you that attend the class on Wednesday evenings, you know that we get into some hard subjects and we have to talk about some things that aren't normally talked about in the Scripture, things that, quite frankly, you don't hear in a lot of churches. People just don't preach on these kinds of things any longer. Used to be that they did, but not any longer. And so uh, people say, well, the Wednesday night is too difficult for us. But then when we make things a little bit easier and we say, well, we're not going to teach tonight. Instead, we're going to have a prayer meeting. Have everybody come out for a prayer meeting. People still don't come. So that tells me that the issue is not really the difficulty of the material that we're dealing with. The issue is probably a problem of the heart. So I'm going to leave it with that. Um, God, God speaks to us in prayer as well, and we can talk to God in prayer and I know that people have legitimate excuses why they can't come on a Wednesday night or whatever, but I just encourage you to double-check your heart in the matter. See where you are in your heart, really, about prayer and and then also the Wednesday night attendance. Well, then the third area of discussion, and we just got a start in this a couple of weeks ago in that last message. The third one is making melody. Making melody, that's about the song service, singing to the Lord. And, of course, music is one of the greatest gifts that God has given to man. You remember that that Saul was comforted with David's music. Saul was a very melancholy man, probably even a little bit deranged. But David's music seemed to do something for him. It comforted him. It it lifted his spirits, and, and it really helped him. And the music does the same for us, although I want to caution you that worship music is not primarily about you and the way that you feel. The music that we sing in church is really for God. And so it matters a whole lot more what God thinks about the music than what we think about the music. So here's the problem. Your style of music might not be God's style of music. A lot of people are crossed up about that. I think often their style of music is not God's music. I think sacred music has to be a different sort from secular music. I think there's a difference that needs to be maintained. Uh, In fact, uh, I would also say this, that we ought to be in such an attitude of worship all the time in our life that it would affect whatever kind of music that we want to listen to. There ought to be a spirituality about us that we favor things that are honoring to God and not filling our minds all the time with the junk of the world. Then I also know that there are people that don't like it because we put preaching up there at number one in the list and they think that music, that's the priority in the church, that's supposed to be first. And those are people, quite frankly, that have the wrong ideas about music. And what they're usually trying to do is please self with their style and making worship music more about them than it is about God. And so people will choose their churches based upon the music without regard to whether there's anything substantial at all that's spoken from the pulpit. Preaching is just an incidental thing that takes place in many of those churches. And so if you ask people, well, how did you enjoy the worship today? 
And they'll say something like, Oh, well, not very well because the music just didn't speak to me today. We have to remind you that God never said the primary way that he was going to speak to you was with music. Oh, preaching, again, that's primarily the way that God speaks. So when everyone says something like that, it's a dead giveaway that there are people that don't have any idea what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. Worship music is not intended to, to get you into the groove. And, and singing is, is not for the purpose of getting you to an emotional high because those that live on emotions very soon die by their emotions. I think you'll find this to be true, or at least I hope you do, that when you hear a good message from God's Word, and uh, you probably don't hear too many from me, but when you do hear a good message from God's Word, God's Word sticks with you. God's Word carries you through the week. There are things that you can draw on when you hear the preaching of God's Word. But if you get your primary high, you might say, your spiritual high from listening to music, then as soon as the music fades, there goes your spiritual high. It's gone. Preaching is designed to stick with us, but it still means uh, worship is still, or music is still a part of worship, so it still means that we have to do that right. Uh, Paul said in Romans chapter 16 that preaching establishes us. It, it, he says that it affects our righteousness and our holiness and our salvation. Singing, though, is a part of worship, not just the preaching and so we would have to say that preaching, or rather singing, also comes under the demand of a biblical pattern. And so when you think about the presentation of the music, the style of it, the lyrics of it, all of that has to be right. Those are extremely important. So what you can never do is you can never package the message in sensual, fleshly, worldly tones and make that music that's pleasing to God. So I'm telling you that sacred music is to be different. It ought to have a distinct sound. It ought to be distinguishable in all of its parts from secular music. So when you do this, when you try to put worldly lyrics to, or worldly, or godly lyrics, I should say, to worldly music, that's not going to cut it. That doesn't necessarily mean that God's going to be happy with that. You have to look at all the whole, the whole package here in order to be pleasing to God. And that doesn't mean that sacred music has to be ugly. It doesn't have to be ugly. It doesn't mean that sacred music can't be satisfying, but what it does mean that as you as a Christian, you have to develop a taste for it. It means you have to get the world out of your mind and think about what God would like to hear, how God wants you to praise Him. And so when you get into that kind of attitude and your heart is right, the sacred music can be very satisfying to you. You see, when you get into that mode, the thing that you're concerned about is, what can I do to please God? What does God desire? And that makes whatever you hear that's godly very pleasing to your ears. Now, we notice the scriptural mandate for singing in Ephesians 5.19 and also in Colossians 3.16, where Paul writes, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Colossians, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, those are comments that Paul made to the church. He approaches, approaches worship here in song with a three-pronged emphasis. And so we're going to take a look at that tonight, the three-pronged emphasis that Paul gives us here 
in worship music. Now, the first thing that he says about it is it's about praising. It's about praising God. Now, let me, let me comment very quickly on this first phrase of Ephesians 5.19. He says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And you might read that and you would say, well, pastor, what you just said is wrong. Because here it's telling us, Paul is saying to us, that worship music is about us. But you need to understand what Paul is saying here. What does this mean? Well, he's talking about corporate singing, that we are to concentrate on others. As, as we share the beauties of Christ in song. And so these verses tell us who is to receive the attention. Do we give attention to the singers? Is it about the show? Is it production? Is it staging? Is it performance? Is that what we're to look for? And there are many churches that are like that. Uh, I've been to churches where the music program comes out right out of a rock concert or Jesus Christ Superstar. I attended a church in Florida many years ago, and um, on the platform of this church, it was, it was made like a stage, and they had stage lighting, they had the ceiling that was blacked out like in a theater, they had strobe lights and smoke machines, this is a Baptist church by the way, uh, strobe lights and smoke machines, and on the platform, up on the stage rather, there were raised platforms where there were girls that were standing and they were swaying back and forth as they were singing the music like go-go girls. Now, I'm old enough to remember what go-go girls are. I don't know if you do or not. But that's what, that's what they did. That, that's the music in the church. Well, is the music program supposed to be a performance? Oh, I know all of us like good singing. Of course we do. I mean, we'd rather hear Bocelli than we would bullfrogs. We like good singing, but... I can tell you that worship is more about praising God than it is about how we sound to each other. How does it sound in the ears of God? And I don't think that all singing has to be like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Sometimes I think that when we're so concerned about that production and the staging of it that we actually ruin worship to God with that. Uh, th there were some members of the church, and it's not anybody in here right now, that at Christmas time told me that they, they actually said this to me that they got more out of going to hear Handel's Messiah sung by people that were mostly, probably not Christians at all, than they did by coming to the church service on Sunday night. And I think that's a terrible travesty. They said they got more out of it, and I would suggest they're probably right. They got what they wanted rather than what pleases God. And I think those two things often run counter to each other. I don't understand why somebody would want to go hear that kind of singing rather to be in God's house. But the purpose of, of singing is to praise God. And, that, and that's why I don't really care a whole lot about professional gospel singers. I don't really care too much about that because it, it usually is the performance. It's usually exalting the person. And the people that, that sing are often not godly people. And if you're not a godly person, it is impossible to lift up the name of Jesus. So I, I don't really care much about that kind of singing. And here's the rub, really, in the whole thing. You can't lift up the name of Jesus without a holy heart. You just can't do it. You know, it reminds me of that story in uh, Acts chapter 16 about the damsel, you remember, that followed Paul and Silas around, and she kept shouting as she followed them. She said, 
These men are the servants of the Most High God. They show us the way of salvation. And that woman had a damsel, had a demon in her. And, and Paul just simply got tired of hearing this from a demon. And so he turned around and he cast the demon out. And I feel the same way about a lot of church music. I get tired of hearing it from demons. So, uh, I don't know, maybe we need to cast some demons out of the church. Uh, I, really, I really used to like southern gospel music. I still, I still like the style, but I've grown weary of all the godless performers that are in that. Today, that, that genre is very heavily influenced by charismatics and alley cats. Uh, you know, to praise God in worship takes worshipers that are holy. And so you remember when you come to church to sing, uh, sing with your heart prepared as if you were coming to the Lord's table for the Lord's Supper. You know, if we lived our Christian lives like that every single day, like the next minute we're going to be sitting at the Lord's table, wouldn't that make a whole lot of difference in the way that we act and we live? Well, the next emphasis of singing, that's praising. We praise God in song. The next part is teaching. Colossians says, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So there has to be some teaching value in the songs that we sing. The words have to have substance. Spiritual truths need to be expressed in the lyrical content. Some of the songs that we sing have such great doctrinal truths in them. Uh, the, the old song, One Day, you, you know that song, One Day When Heaven Was filled with his praises. And that song has a whole entire gospel story laid out in every verse. It starts out with the incarnation of Christ, and it moves on to his, his death, and then to his resurrection, and then to the second coming. Well, how could you sing a song that's better than that? I mean, the whole story of Christ wrapped up in a few verses of a song. And then other songs like Christ Receiveth Sinful Men. There's a line in that song that says, Now my heart condemns me not. Pure before the law I stand. He who satisfied me from all spot satisfied its last demand. Can you name the doctrines that are in that song? There you find justification and you find the atonement. The new songs that we've added were for the purpose of teaching. And what we did was we took out many or some of the gospel songs that were written during the 19th century. And quite frankly, many of those aren't truly hymns. And we've replaced those with songs that have strong doctrinal content. And I know that there are some people that don't like that. They, they think that the songs that we drop from our programs, those are the old hymns of the faith. But they really aren't. They're just songs that you become familiar with because those have been sung in churches and they were incorporated into church services by the Moody Sankey revivals in order to get emotional responses. And so they're songs that speak more about the sinner's response than they are about God. Some of them are good, some of them are okay. Others are far inferior to some of the new music that's coming out, especially I have in my mind what's been written by the Sovereign Grace groups today. I mean, very good doctrinal content. But we face a problem here because we want to be traditionalist. Traditional music, that's what we want to use in the church. And traditional music has become synonymous with those songs that came out of the revival period. So that's a problem for us. But the problem here really should be that if a tradition has not been founded properly, then we don't need the tradition. 
We need to be concerned about the lyrical content. What does a song teach? And so, quite frankly, many of the songs that we've added to our programs are more biblical than those revival period songs. And that's not to say that there aren't modern songs that are a complete travesty. Some of them are just simply horrible. We wouldn't want to use them in our services. We have publishers that are writing songs today that are constant repetition of words that really don't need to be repeated. Gary and I were speaking about this the other day um, because Gary orders music from the Gettys. He, he was asked if it would be possible to raise support to have a Getty concert in our area. Now, if you don't know who the Gettys are, they're sovereign grace songwriters, and, and some of the hymns that we're using came from them. And so uh, he talked to some of the choir directors that were in the area, and most of them had never heard of the Gettys. But then he gave them some samples of their music, and they were just very, very impressed with the doctrinal content that was in those songs. And some of them said they were just sick of using the music that they'd been using that really doesn't say anything at all. So we don't want mindless songs. We want songs that cause you to think about what you're singing. We want songs that have doctrines in them that teach. Older songs like, And Can It Be? What a great song that is. Isaac Watts songs like, Alas, and did my Savior bleed when I survey the wondrous cross and Jesus shall reign. Those are songs with great doctrinal content. And so when you have a new song that comes along and the music's right and the, the words, the lyrics are right and they follow that same type of example, then those are songs that's, that's nothing wrong with us using those. And I think that we ought to use them if we can get songs that are stronger in their doctrine than the old songs that we're used to singing. Now, if, you, if you're interested in this particular area and you want to know what went wrong with singing, what went wrong with the uh, hymnody of the, of the church, then go and listen to or look up on our website, sermon number 24 in the Church Doctrine series. And there I, I deal with the period of revivalism and how those songs actually replaced old hymns of the faith in order to begin teaching a new heretical theology that came out of revivalism, of doctrinal or rather of decisional regeneration. That's why we have many of those songs. Well, then the third prong in the three-prong approach that Paul gives us here to making melody is that the songs must be engaging. They have, first, you know, they have to be songs that are praises to the Lord. They have to teach with doctrinal content. And then they also must engage the heart. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. If you're looking for a place to insert yourself now into the process, right there it is. Your heart must be engaged. Well, how is your heart engaged? Well, we all agree that music is very powerful. Music does, in fact, stir our emotions. And I am not saying that emotions are bad. There are many times that I sit in that seat over there and we begin to sing some of our songs. And, and I'm sitting there thinking and I think of those words of the song and I just get too emotional to sing. Just too emotional. I remember many years ago that I got up to sing in the church, our church in Kentucky. That's back when I was leading music. And uh, I remember a comment that uh, my mother made about my singing. It was not as bad as what Chuck has to say about it, but uh, she made some comments about my singing. Uh, my mom and dad are very different people. Well, my dad's gone now, but they were very different people emotionally. There were many times that my, that my dad just 
couldn't sing, he couldn't preach because he began thinking about the grace of God and he just began to cry. And, and he, couldn't just, he couldn't get himself together and it was very, very difficult sometimes and he'd just have to stop and cry about things. But my mom was a very, it's a very different person. I only remember one time seeing my mom cry. And this was when uh, I was little that uh, we had a cousin, a little girl about a year old. Her name was Elizabeth. And uh, my uncle brought her to our house and just left her, just left her with us. And so my mom began to raise her, and this, this little girl became a daughter to my parents. She became a sister to us kids. And uh, mom and dad raised her. And then one day, just out of the blue, just like they left her, they came back and they took her. And our family had no claim on her. And I remember then that my mom cried about that. And that's the only time that I ever remember her crying. She's not a very emotional person. She's different emotionally. And uh, anyway, I was, I was leading music one day, and I got up to sing, and I started the song, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us, much we need thy tender care. And I don't know what it was that day, but those words just really struck me deeply and I was up here in the pulpit and I was trying to lead the music and I couldn't I just I just began to cry and I couldn't stop crying and so after that was over I, I, I remember my mom said to me oh you're just like your dad you're always blubbering about something well she wasn't cold-hearted no, she wasn't cold-hearted she loved the Lord but she was just differently emotionally words of a song were not going to move her She's just a different person. But music is very powerful, and we know that. Uh, you've seen Brother Dalton get up and sing. A few weeks ago, he sang the song, Bow the Knee. And that was difficult for him to get through. The words just speak to you, and the emotions start to come out, and you can't hardly sing the song. And we appreciate that. And we appreciate it because we are emotional creatures. God gave us those emotions. And emotions are not bad for us. And music ought to move us, but I'm telling you, music ought to move us in the right way. Now, here's the problem as, we, as I speak about the revivalism thing, that Dwight Moody knew that music could move people. But he was the first person to use church music in the wrong way. What he did was to team up with Ira Sankey, and Ira Sankey was a very beautiful singer. He was also a great songwriter, many great songs that he wrote. But they started to use their music to play on emotions. And they used it to try to get responses during the revival meetings. And this is why you still see today long extended invitations with lots of tear-jerking stories and multiple verses of songs like Just As I Am. And that's because preachers learned to use their sermons and songs to play on emotions. And I'm sorry if you don't like my opinion about that, but... If the purpose of our music is for manipulation, then the purpose is wrong. And I don't want to be accusatory and lump all churches that do things like this in the category of people that are manipulators because they're all not manipulators. I remember that my dad many times gave long extended invitations and he did not believe in using manipulation because you can't believe that and at the same time believe that it's the Holy Spirit that actually moves the heart. So you're not going to mix those two things and get Holy Spirit movement mixed up with man's manipulation. But there are many, many churches that do use it for that purpose. 
They really don't think that the Holy Spirit is in charge of what happens here in a church service. And so you had men like Jack Hiles who would say things like, well, what the preacher has to do in his invitations is sneak up on people and get him before, get that person before he clutches the back of the pew and then refuses to come to Christ. He resists Christ. And there was a man who thought that it was his persuasion that made the difference between people coming to Christ or not coming to Christ. And so you can well imagine that he's going to use every method they can. If it takes songs or whatever, that emotionalism, then they'll use any method that he could to get people to come down the aisles. And there are people that still do that. And that is the wrong use of music. God never intended for us to have music do what only the Holy Spirit can do. And that's why I purposely do not use long invitations. Am I afraid that somebody, that somebody's going to get away that God intended to save? Am I afraid of that? Let me go off a little bit here. The manipulator is a sacerdotalist. You remember what sacerdotalism is? We studied that in our church doctrine series. What is sacerdotalism? Sacerdotalism means that there's someone who stands between you and God who is indispensable for your salvation. Roman Catholics are sacerdotalists. Why? Because they believe that a priest is necessary. A priest has to be the one that administers the sacraments to you, and sacraments are for salvation. And so a priest is indispensable in the salvation of someone in the Roman Catholic Church. But a man who uses manipulation in his invitations because he thinks that's the way to get people to come to Christ, he is also a sacerdotalist because he believes that he's the one that's indispensable to convince you that you need to come to Christ. That's sacerdotalism in a nutshell. Now, the only thing that we need is the Holy Spirit to speak to our heart. And so I'm not really concerned that someone is going to get away that should have been saved during a church service. My responsibility is done when I preach the gospel of Christ. At that point, it's the Holy Spirit's job to take the word that's preached and to use it as he sees fit. And God can save people in the parking lot as well as he can in the pew. So I don't use, need to use manipulation. I'm not worried, worried about this. Did I do enough to get somebody saved? I'm not worried about that. Not worried about it at all. So you're not going to find the Brian Baptist Church using a song service to try and manipulate people. Now let me go back to my thought, though. None of this changes the fact that music affects us emotionally. Now, what I, the way that I would rather say this is the way that God uses music is to stir up the new nature that's in man. Not stirring up the old nature, but to stir up the new nature in someone who's been regenerated and has come to Christ, and God uses that music to stir his soul in order to praise him and to worship him. Now, the emotions then of the new man come into play, and those emotions are not for satisfying his sensual pleasure. That's not what the Holy Spirit does with him to mu with, through music and through the preaching of the Word, it stirs him up for the purpose of pleasing God. And, and the person who's been stirred in that way will please God with the kind of music that he, that he uses. I had, a, I had a good friend that I was talking with the other day, and uh, in the past he was one of these people who thought, well, he was a praise and worship guy. And he thought that music was the thing, 
mean, that's the worship of the church. That's the way he thought. Then he got into, under some good teaching, got into a different church, and they began to teach him a little bit differently on this. The only thing is, I think maybe went a little too far the other direction. And, uh, and uh, he said that we were talking about this, and he said to me, it really doesn't matter when you have the music. You can have the music after the service if you want, because it really doesn't make any difference. And um, in one sense, that's true, because preaching is primary. But I also think that music can prepare our hearts for preaching. I like music before the service, before the preaching begins. I, I like the music then because I think that it can soften the heart to hear the Word of God. And, and you know how this goes. When, when uh, you want to exercise, what do you do? Well, you want to warm up a little bit first, don't you? You want to get the muscles stretched a little bit and ready for the hard workout. And I think that's what music can do for us in a church service. It can get you ready for some harder stuff. And so that means, what that means to me is I can beat on you a little bit harder. You, you can take some more. Because you've been through a song service where hopefully your heart's been lifted up to the Lord. And so... I can just give you some harder things. Prayer does that. Singing does that. They help, to, they help to engage the heart for the preaching of the Word. So music engages the heart. But the thing that you have to remember about music, it does engage the heart, but it can engage the heart in the wrong way. And it engages the heart in the right way. It's always engaging the heart in some way, either right or wrong. Let me give you another example. There's a guy that lives about four or five doors from me. And uh, on days sometimes when, when I'm at home studying, he drives down the street with his windows down with this really loud uh, rap music just blaring and the, the words of the songs are filthy. And he comes down and, his, and my windows are rattling because he has it so loud. And I'm studying the Word of God and I hear the rap songs and suddenly my heart becomes engaged. And what I want to do is go down and throw a cherry bomb in his front seat. Music is powerful and so are cherry bombs. And that engages my heart. Does music engage your heart? Yes, it will. It'll cause you to do some things, maybe some crazy things sometimes. I don't want you to do this, but... If you did do it, I know what would happen. Let's suppose you go to a nightclub. Nobody in Berean Baptist, I'm surely you wouldn't do this, but let's suppose you go to a nightclub and they turn the lights down low and they start the music and they start with all their sexy lyrics and their songs. What happens next? Don't stop right there. Don't think about that. I don't want you to think bad things, but you know what happens next. Now, let's suppose then that you take the same kind of music and you transfer it into the church service. Then what happens? Well, people are engaged, but not for the glory of God. And that's the problem with many of our church services. They're engaging hearts, but not for the glory of God. You know, there are a lot of demons that go to church. The devil likes to go to church. He shows up all of the time, a lot more often than many Christians do. And uh, he likes to have his music in the church. Oh, one thing I know the devil can never do, the devil can never drive out the Holy Spirit. That's impossible for a Christian. He can't do that. But what he can do is work on that old nature that's in you. And the devil often does that. The Holy Spirit works on the new nature. The devil works on the old nature. Those two things are always in conflict with one another. And if you're giving in to the devil in the old nature, you're not going to glorify God. It's as simple as that. You can't do both at the same time. 
So the devil works on the old nature, and he gets his way in the church, unfortunately, the same way that he does out on the street. That's a travesty for anything that's called Christian. So there are churches where the devil's in the music. Some of the most powerful music that I've ever heard is sung in charismatic churches. Some of the most moving songs and music I've ever heard are in charismatic services. You know, I watch them on television sometimes because I've, I've got this self-torture thing going on. It's sort of a Martin Luther complex, I think, and the self-flagellation thing. And so I watch, I watch these songs, and I notice in the middle of the many of these songs that people's lips begin to quiver, and they start speaking in tongues. What caused that? That's the devil in the music. Music engages the heart. They got excited about the music. So the music is very powerful. It works on the heart. And what we have to be sure of is that our hearts are tuned to the Lord. And so that the music is right in its sound, that it's right in its lyrical content. Now something else that we notice here about engaging the heart, Colossians says, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Do you understanding, understand what singing with grace means? How do, how do we receive grace? Well, I think we would all say, well, grace comes from God, doesn't it? God, God is the one that gives us grace. Grace is a very spiritual thing, so what does that tell us? The Holy Spirit must be the one that brings us grace. So that tells us right there that the Holy Spirit is going to be involved with our singing. That's where our grace comes from. And the Holy Spirit comes and he communes with the inward man. Now, the devil tries to do that too, as I just said. He's trying to suppress the work of the Spirit all the time. But the Holy Spirit must take control through the preaching of the Word of God. And then what happens from there is when, when the Word of God is preached and we hear that, when, we, when the glories of Christ are revealed, then we can't help but burst out into singing. That's a natural response for a Christian from hearing the Word of God. Paul was like that. Some of the doxologies that he spoke in Scriptures was from a heart that was filled with doctrinal truths. And when he'd just given doctrinal truth, he couldn't stop. He couldn't help but just to stop for a minute and let out this hoop of doxology. One of these is in the end of the doctrinal section of Ephesians, where he says in Ephesians 3.21, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. You read that and you think, well, that's where the book should stop. And that's the ending, isn't it? But no, that's not the ending. That's just Paul stopping for a moment to praise God for what he just said. All those doctrinal truths that he's just given. A spontaneous response giving praise to God for the doctrine. Doctrine results in an engaged heart which causes us to praise God for his grace. I mean, who could ever imagine this? That doctrine would be good enough to keep people awake during a church service and actually cause them to sing. Another one that you're familiar with is Romans 11:33, where Paul said, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You know when he said that, Romans chapter 11, what, what that's all about? He just finished another doctrinal section. You know what he was teaching? The doctrines of grace. He's been teaching about how God has called us to salvation, and he speaks of Israel, how Israel is going to be saved because... They're God's chosen people. He has another one. 
in 1 Timothy 1.17, where he said, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He's only 17 verses into his letter in 1 Timothy, and he gives a shout out. And you know what he's shouting about? He's thinking about how God had changed him. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He'd been changed into a preacher. And he said in verse number 14 of that chapter, And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. You see how the grace of God just takes over and gives you something to sing about? Those same doxologies that I just read you were included or incorporated into many early church hymns. Just a shout out of praise. Well, the world doesn't have any trouble breaking out into song, does it? Oh, I like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. And everybody's just so excited about their music. And you can tell that sometimes. I was following a guy down Commerce the other day. And uh, he was bebopping all over the seat as he drove down the highway. And the car was going like this. He was driving down as he's listening to his music. You know, you know... Um, you want to blow somebody's mind? Try doing this sometime. Put a CD of Amazing Grace in your player. Crank it all the way up and roll your windows down. Drive down the street. Roll down your window and look at the guy next to you in the car and serenade him with, A mighty fortress is our God. Blow their minds. You know what happened? You get taken to the nut house. He still drives down the street with his rap music going on. That's usually what happens. Well, when you come into the church... You need to be ready to sing because God commands it. Don't, don't sit in the church sourly. Don't sit here while the singing's going on and not lift your voice and pray. Sing out because God commands that. That's worship. He says to sing with grace in your heart. And you better get used to singing. If you want to go to heaven, get used to singing because there's going to be a lot of singing in heaven. L- listen to this to the words of this great song. I, you know, here's a song that's being sung in heaven. We'll be sung in heaven right here. Revelation chapter 5. And they sung a new song. A new song. By the, a new song. Imagine that. A new song. And they sung a new song saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Good clues to how to live for Jesus. Worship him. Listen to his word. Pray to the Father. Sing with grace in your heart. Those are public acts of worship. I have one other that I want to talk to you about, but I am saving that one for next week. It's also very important. I think it deserves the time that we're going to give it. Uh, An entire sermon, hopefully just about an entire sermon on this next one that I wanted to give you. Very good time for us to talk about it as well. So one more act of public worship. We'll, We'll do that next week. You can't do without it, and the church can't do without it, if you want to live for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we spent together in your word tonight, and it's always a pleasure to open up your word and speak to the people of God. Lord, help us to understand how to worship you. There are instructions that are given in the scriptures, and 
as I said in the beginning of the message, we, we have to stick to what, to what you've said to be, to be right about our worship. Help us, Lord. Help us to sing the right songs. Help us to look at the content of the songs and then think about the words that are being sung and just to be sure that they are pleasing to you, that they honor you as our Lord and Savior. Bless your people tonight, Lord. We give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.